Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This episode explores the struggle for human rights and democracy in the digital age. Increasingly sophisticated technology has provided new avenues for authoritarian regimes to target activists, stifle dissent, and encroach upon civil liberties. Guests in this episode, recorded at the 2023 South by Southwest Conference, discuss how regimes abuse technology and share insight into how the tech industry can unite to protect human rights globally. Okay, we're going to get started here, everybody. Um, I just want to uh, welcome you all here. Uh, My name is Scott Carpenter, and I'll be moderating today's panel. Um, I am the managing director of a company called Jigsaw. It's a team within Google that explores threats to open societies and then builds technologies and partnerships to find ways of redressing those threats. Um, I want It's a great privilege to be here. I want to take a moment just to thank uh, the Human Rights Foundation for uh, inviting me and us Uh, to present today. We want to thank all of you for uh, uh, signifying that there was a lot of interest in this subject, especially by the fact that you are here. I counted 59 different events (laughs) that were competing with ours, uh, not to mention the great sights and sounds and food of uh, South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So really, really happy to have you here for what I think is going to be Uh, an extraordinary uh, panel and discussion. So let me first uh, start by setting a bit of context for the conversation. So authoritarians uh, around the world have been using technology to target activists, stifle dissent, encroach on civil liberties for a long time now. And what's interesting is they've not only done that at home, but increasingly they're doing it outside of their own borders. From shutting down the internet entirely to preventing protesters from organizing to installing spyware on activist devices to spreading disinformation about people and organizations online, uh, both at home and abroad. Digital authoritarians are becoming bolder, more creative at manipulating Uh, technology to go after those who disagree with them. Increasingly and alarmingly, they are also beginning to compare notes uh, with one another, to coordinate and share what works and what doesn't in terms of how they are operating. So in this panel, what we hope to explore are strategies to uphold human rights and democracy in the face of these growing threats. Uh, Drawing on their experience in the digital security world and in activist movements around them and within the think tank community that explores the technologies that are being deployed, each of the panelists will share their perspectives uh, on how regime Uh, regimes are threatening rights, the rights of activists both at home and abroad, while also suggesting how technology might be used uh, to defeat those threats and how all of us working together can come alongside one another uh, to do our part to do the same, to defend human rights in an increasingly digital age. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce these amazing uh, people. To my far left, <laughs> not only in, only in position, uh, is uh, Manal Al-Sharif. Manal is a Saudi women's rights activist who launched the hashtag Women to Drive movement in Saudi Arabia in 2011. In that year, she was named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world and Newsweek's top 10 tech revolutionaries, love that title, tech revolutionary, for her leading the Women to Drive movement, which, alas, also landed her in prison. 
Since being released, Manal has also co-founded, and she'll talk about this a bit later, the Ethical Technologist Society and is host of the Tech for Evil podcast. I encourage you to check it out. In 2012, she received the Václav Havel Prize for Creative Dissent at the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is also sponsored by the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, and to her right is Arthur Holland Michel. Arthur is a Peruvian-born writer and researcher who currently serves as an associate researcher at the UN Institute for oh. Disarmament Research. That's not yeah, true anymore? Not true, no. Okay, so we will excise that, excise that from the video, and whoever shared that with me will be shot. Okay, so he's no longer doing that. Instead, he's doing something much more, much more exciting, much more powerful, uh, and much more, I mean, has a lot more stature to it. Uh, he is a senior fellow, hopefully, yes, at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. He has written ex extensively, but not exclusively. He's written extensively about drones, about surveillance, artificial intelligence, robots, and, and <clears throat> art <laughs> uh, for numerous publications. His first book, Eyes in the Sky, which was published in 2019, addressed the rise of advanced aerial surveillance and technology, something we'll be discussing a bit today. And then to my immediate left is Felicia Antonio. Felicia works with Access Now as the campaign manager for the hashtag Keep It On campaign, which is a global campaign that highlights and fights against internet shutdowns. The hashtag Keep It On coalition is made up of more than 210 organizations worldwide, including ours. Uh, before joining Access Now, she was a program associate at the Media Foundation for West Africa, where she coordinated the African Freedom of Expression Exchange and led campaigns and advocacy work on freedom of expression and digital rights. Please join me in welcoming this extraordinary panel. Okay, to get us started, um, I'm going to ask uh, Felicia to set the stage for us. Um, as I mentioned, digital authoritarians are becoming bolder, uh, more sophisticated in how they manage their respective internets. Uh, and increasingly, shutdowns are a part of their toolkit. So Felicia, Access Now has been reporting on this in the State of the Internet report for a long time. Uh, in 2022, the reports were pretty dismal and dark. Uh, and 2023 ain't exactly starting off with a bang in that sense. Um, not only what's happening and has been happening in Iran, but just this past weekend, shutdowns in Mauritania and uh, amongst a number of other places. So I was wondering if you could help set the stage by situating the current state of the Internet in some sort of historical context. Thank you very much, um, Scott, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, I want to say that um, for the purpose of this conversation, I just want to briefly define what we mean by an internet shutdown. Um, so for us, um, Access Now and the Keep It On Coalition, which is currently made up of over 300 um, organizations around the world, um, we define an internet shutdown as intentional disruption of the internet or electronic and or electronic communication platforms, rendering them um, inaccessible or effectively unusable for a specific location or population, and it's often to exert control over the flow of information. So intentional is what we focus on, um, we don't document technical disruptions. We document um, inc incidents when, where governments or third parties or other actors intentionally shut down the internet to deny citizens um, access to information. So Access Now and the Keep It On Coalition, we've been documenting this over the past, um, since 2016. And sadly, we've recorded over a thousand 
um, incidents of shutdowns in at least 75 countries worldwide. Um, our monitoring hence shows that this um, rights harming practice is spreading across the globe. And so in 2022, um, we documented 187 incidents of shutdowns in 35 countries. And um, this is the highest number of countries we've documented um, in shutdowns in one single year. So very, very concerning. Um, for instance, we have countries like India being the major perpetrator of internet shutdowns with 84 shutdowns happening in the country. Um, we also saw the use of um, internet shutdowns during um, conflict situations. For instance, Russia did disrupt the internet 22 times in Ukraine during its um, full-scale invasion. And then um, Iran, with the um, uprising unrest protest that began last year um, following the murder of Masa Gina Amini, we did see 18 incidents of shutdowns happening in Iran. And then Myanmar, with the military junta taking over the country since um, the, the coup happened, um, we did see incidents of shutdowns, about seven of them. And most of the triggers, or the triggers we saw, or the incidents that triggered these shutdowns include um, protests, which was the main um, trigger of shutdowns. We had 62 shutdowns happening around protests. And then we saw 33 shutdowns being documented during active conflicts. Another very worrying trend. And then we have eight shutdowns related to examinations. So there are governments that shut down the internet with a claim that they want to prevent students from cheating during exams. Um, yes, so that is the most ridiculous um, justification I've ever heard, and I'm sure you can all relate um, to that. We've also seen shutdowns being used and weaponized during elections, and um, it's mostly to interfere with the electoral processes. The key trends we observed last year was that there was an an increased number of shutdowns being used or being linked with some form of violence or human rights abuses against people. And we documented 80, um, sorry, 48 incidents of these shutdowns um, that were directly linked to violence and human rights abuses perpetrated against people. Um, Iran was one place we saw this. Ethiopia, which I will talk about briefly, um, and then Tajikistan as well. Aside this, we also saw human rights abuses such as physical assault, murder, sexual violence being perpetrated against um, people whenever the internet was shut down. And then we have seen that most governments that have shut down the internet before repeat the shutdowns. So um, there's some form of entrenchment, and also very pro prolonged um, shutdowns are also happening. And um, this means shutdowns that we, we've actually seen shutdowns that started like two years ago still happening. Um, so in Ethiopia's Tigray region, when the conflict broke out in November 2020, the internet was shut down, and it's still ongoing. And then finally, the impact of shutdowns against um, the impact of shutdowns on people is immeasurable and it continues to affect people in diverse ways. And so we continue to shine light on this as well. So less than three months into 2023, um, as Scott, you mentioned, we've seen countries like Ethiopia, Turkey, Pakistan, Mauritania, Iran, Afghanistan already shutting down the internet. And the internet and digital platforms um, are playing a critical role in, human, in advancing human rights, in providing people an opportunity to mobilize, and also giving voice to the voiceless. And sadly, most governments are threatened by this people power, and so um, they tend to implement these rights harming practices like internet shutdowns, surveillance, which my fellow um, panelists will speak to in detail very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. 
Felicia, I uh, really appreciate um, that uh, elaboration of how many, I mean, it's crazy to think about how many countries are now resorting to internet shutdowns to control their populations. And the question is, like, why are they doing so? Like, what is the, the threat that they face that they feel like they have to do something so existential to preserve their uh, regimes? Uh, even though that can often mean also cutting themselves off from the financial system, for example. Um, so we suspect that it has something to do with the ability of people to organize uh, using social media, etc. And so I wanted to turn to Manal uh, just to share kind of her reflections on why it is so important at times of political crisis and that social media offers an opportunity. It, cre it, it does provide tools. So I'd like to ask you, Manal, uh, to just reflect a little bit on your own experience in those early days of the hash women to drive uh, um, campaign that you led, how important social media was. And I remember you saying that at one point, Twitter saved your life. Um, and then I want you to hint at, but not discuss in any detail right now, about how your perspective changed. Uh, and, and because Manal is also no longer on social media at all. So I want to get those two perspectives. But first, just talk about the empowering nature of social media, if you could, from your experience. Uh, the secret police came to arrest me at 2 a.m. And my neighbor knew. I called one of the activists. She tweeted about it. And one of my neighbors like, knew where I lived. And he, he came, hid behind a bush, um, and was tweeting the whole time of my arrest. And that got me, thankfully, got the news to pick up my arrest. Otherwise, 2 a.m., who's awake? Who would know about me that I was in jail? I was arrested. So it did save my life. And my group, the Women to Drive group, they were so scared when I was in jail. So they closed all our social media accounts because we were threatened that we have to close it. And when I was released from jail, it was with the condition that I don't campaign. I don't use social media. I don't do any interviews. I don't talk about it. But what I did when I first left jail, the first thing I did is I opened a Twitter account, my Twitter account with my name. And that night I got 10,000 followers in one night. People were really, so living in a dictatorship, there's no parliament, elected parliament. Arabs or the, in the Arab Spring, we use social media as our virtual parliament. And at that time, the reach was organic. There was no algorithm tell you to follow this person. When you, when people are, interested in what you're saying, they will follow you. They will get the news. They don't have, you don't have to pay Facebook or Twitter or whoever to show your content to your followers. Unfortunately, of course, all these things change later. So for us, social media in Saudi Arabia, for example, when I post the video of me driving on YouTube, it was number one trending video. And we broke a taboo because in Saudi Arabia, women couldn't drive and they didn't see a woman drive in the city. And that just changed the psychological um, fear that we had as women. So it was very important. Later on, fast forward, in 2018, I had to close my Twitter account. I had over around 300,000 followers at that time. And a lot of journalists, when there's something to comment, they would uh, message me on my Twitter or mention me on Twitter. And that's how I can get the message out, how, that's how I can talk. But the problem of Twitter, Saudi Arabia had an intern in Twitter. They used that intern who worked in Twitter, and, it was, and I work in cybersecurity, by the way. I'm a trained ethical hacker. And uh, that, that intern in Twitter, in Twitter is a flat, um, that's, that's why I started the Ethical Technology Society, it's a flat, uh, infrastructure that means uh, it's a flat structure that means once you get account as a Twitter employee you have access to all Twitter users information the Saudi government used him to leak over 6,000 uh, Twitter accounts they were anonymous they leaked the numbers of these activists one of them was Omar Abdelaziz who was in communication with Jamal Khashoggi mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia started the electric electronic army where the electronic army is a lot of fake accounts, over 10,000. 
they spread the propaganda of the, the regime. And they would really target and intimidate any person. I wake up in the morning, I say good morning on my Twitter, and I just get attacked. And that's what, when, I, when I had to leave. So Umar Abdelaziz was communicating with uh, Jamal Khashoggi on Twitter. His number was leaked. All those messages were leaked. Uh, there are a lot of Saudi, all these anonymous accounts that they were critique of the regime, they're all silenced now. You can still see them, but they're not tweeting since 2018. When those numbers were leaked, everyone there was arrested. McKinsey, they did a whole report on the influencers on Twitter in 2018. And they handed that report to the Saudi government. They said, these are the people, McKinsey, these are the people who are critique of the regime. All these accounts were silenced. So that's why it's very dangerous now for activists to be there. Technologists are not doing their part. And unfortunately, we lost our voice. So that's why I'm off. Thank you, Manal. We're going to come back to that in a bit. So there's, there's following somebody on Twitter, um, but there's also just following people. And I'm going to turn to Arthur. Um, you know, that, that e effect of being followed by your government uh, has that chilling effect where people no longer risk to organize. They can't trust who they're speaking to, uh, et cetera. It has a very chilling effect on the ability to organize. Arthur, your book, Eyes in the Sky, which was published an eon ago in 2019, <laughs> uh, opened the eyes of many of us to the capacity of surveillance from the sky, of following people from the sky. And as I've alluded to, I've been interested in what the psychological impact is of knowing that you're being watched or even suspected of being watched is on a person's uh, personal sense of freedom. Um, recently with the Chinese balloon that was overhead, we were all wondering what the heck that was all about. And you kind of suggested that it might have been an opportunity where the Chinese government really wanted us to be able to see the balloon, understand it was there. But I was just wondering if you could kind of educate us a little bit on the power of these tools and also the, the trends that you see. Sure, thanks, Scott. And I'll first say that I'm tremendously honored to be here. I'm, I'm feeling a little intimidated by the giants who are to my left and to my right. Um, but uh, the, the, the Chinese balloon case, yeah, it was, it was an interesting one because I think it was a really valuable object lesson for us all about the indiscriminate uh, effect of surveillance technology and, and the way that surveillance technologies are increasingly becoming more and more indiscriminate. Um, my theory about why, uh, you know, China sent it uh, for the express purpose of being seen um, was that it's pretty unlikely that they were going to get anything of kind of tactical value in terms of intelligence collection. I mean, this is a very slow-moving balloon. They knew that the U.S. would know about it far in advance of it actually entering into U.S. airspace. Uh, they also, um, yeah, they, 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 they knew that uh, the U.S. was probably going to take measures to kind of protect their assets. So uh, in, in that regard, they, I have this sense that maybe they just wanted to kind of freak people out. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing about the balloon is we're all so vain so as to think that maybe it's looking at us, you know. <laughs> but I can assure you if, if you were, you know, sunbathing in the Pacific Northwest or whatever, in January, which you probably weren't doing, uh, you know, the, the, the balloon had no interest in you. The people behind the balloon had, had no interest in you. And in, in that sense, it, it kind of um, brought to mind uh, what actually something we were just talking about off stage, Scott, which was the, the you know, the US uh, drone campaign. Um, and uh, 
you know, the government position was that these drones were incredibly precise, and arguably, if you compare them to you know, Second World War bombing campaigns, they were, but they were incredibly indiscriminate in, in the psychological impact that they had on people on, on the ground. And, and this is no accident, I should say, when, when, when you look at the de development of surveillance technology. In fact, uh, you know, in my reporting, I came across this incredible, uh, very quiet, quietly released uh, Pentagon document that said that when it came to surveillance technologies that were developed for use in the, in the wars in the Middle East, the point wasn't so much to uh, see everything, because that is, of course, a technical impossibility. It was to give those on the ground the sense that they were being watched perpetually. That's the pinopticon, right? Uh, yeah, the whole idea. Can you explain? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the pinopticon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, a direct quote was that they wanted people to constantly be looking over their over their shoulder. Um, and uh, I think that we're headed in a direction where um, technologies are increasingly serving that narrative. Now, one of the things that I want to convey to you in this panel is that maybe we, you know, we're talking about these big, scary dictatorships, but we shouldn't let ourselves off so easily. Mm. Because I, I feel like the, the tech community has contributed a lot to this narrative. You know, when we say artificial intelligence can detect lung cancer with greater precision than any human could, um, or that it can predict what you, uh, you know, are going to want to eat for breakfast or what, or what songs you're going to want to listen to. And we all say, oh, wow, that sounds about right, artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's pretty groovy. And then someone says, oh, and now we're going to put artificial intelligence in surveillance systems. And so the, the logical step is, oh, my God, it's going to be able to see absolutely everything in a way that, you know, uh, humans aren't able to. And it's going to be able to predict our moves in a way that humans um, aren't able to. And the one final thing I'll say is that in addition to that sort of narrative continuity, um, there's also a, a continuity between the perhaps seemingly very noble reasons that we develop a lot of these technologies and the ways they end up getting used for ill. You know, uh, one of the main reasons we develop these things is for efficiency. Say, oh, you'll get on your planes much quicker. You know, they're, they're scanning our badges to come into these rooms. I'm sure there's some efficiency argument around that. But when you bring up the panopticon, one of the things about the panopticon is that, um, you know, in, in this perfect panoptic surveillance uh, framework, there are no bars on the prison cells. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need it, right? So you walk onto an airplane without needing to show your boarding pass to everyone. And it seems really seamless, and we think that's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, that is exactly the same technology that can give a person a sense that even though there are no physical barriers around them, their hands um, are, are, you know, are tied. Yeah, so the integration of these technologies to give us a, a deeper, more profound illusion of freedom uh, as they're integrated. Uh, in some cases, for instance, with the, the Chinese social score system, it's designed to shape behavior in a way that'll, that is commensurate with what the, the government expects from you. Um, and in this case, we are, we are giving up a lot for the sake of just convenience to make it so that we don't have to do things that we we don't want to do just for the sake of getting to whatever we're doing more quickly uh, in our societies. And I think we're not asking a lot of the, the right questions. Um, I want to go back to Manal real quickly. Um, there's a friend of mine and a friend of a number of people in the room, uh, Masi Alinejad, who is a Iranian uh, women's activist, and she's been in the United States for a long while now, and she's been subject to a number of assassination, kidnapping attempts, and then assassination attempts in the United States by the Iranian government. Uh, and she is a target of, of surveillance. Um, her phone's been hacked again. She's been tracked in multiple ways by people on the ground. Um, and I know, I know, Manal, that as you 
left for Australia, ultimately, you experienced some of, of this, uh, the, the reach of a government that has the will and the capacities and capabilities to uh, track you beyond its borders. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, awesome. one, other, one other thing. You also mentioned to me last night, and I wanted to get your reaction, but you, you mentioned to me last night that you've never felt, I think you used the word defeated, and so, in the context of this answer, maybe you could explain a little bit more about what you meant by that. Uh, 2019, who uses WhatsApp here? Good. <laughs> Have you heard of the zero-click hack? Anyone heard of that? Uh, you're, uh, I work in cybersecurity. We, do, we run awareness campaigns, and we tell you not to click on links from unknown sources. It doesn't work anymore, that advice. You can't be hacked without you doing anything. WhatsApp, you get a missed call on your WhatsApp, and you get hacked. 2019, one of the activists was released from jail, and she messaged me on WhatsApp. And I'm like, are you crazy? Messaged me on Wicker. At that time, we used Quicker because it was, don't use it. It's owned by Amazon now. But anyway. <laughs> and I said, are you crazy? Why are you messaging me on WhatsApp? Message me on Wicker. And she said, no, no, no. They see everything as if they're sitting behind you, looking at your phone. Working in cyber, any um, encrypted messages is end-to-end. -end. Even if you intercept it, you can't. They actually use NSO group Pegasus to hack their phone through a missed call on WhatsApp or iMessages without you doing anything. And they have full control of your phone. So they were reading all our messages in her, in her interrogation. They were showing her all our messages, all the activists. Today, I can't call or message any of the women rights activists that we worked together for years, because that could cause them problem. Does it matter what encrypted messaging app that you use? They can hack you. If you carry this phone with you, who has their phone with you? Whoever has the power and money to hack you will hack you. Doesn't matter how secure you are. There are no more security for you. The only way for me is when someone travel out of Saudi Arabia, I meet them offline, no phones, in a park far away, to know what's happening back home, unfortunately. And the other thing that we created that really I felt so defeated, there's something called echo chambers. There's information bubbles and echo chambers. I always thought Saudis have access to information. Why they don't speak up? But that's information bubble when you don't have access to information from outside. What's more dangerous is the echo chamber, chambers. And that means even when you get information from outside, you discredit the source of information. So they don't believe, they're so brainwashed that anyone who speaks against the human abuse, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia is against the country. I love my country and my people and I differentiate between the government and the people. They're two different entities. So that's why I feel so defeated today. And that's why I started the Tick for Evil uh, podcast where we talk about our digital rights. What can we do today to protect ourselves? What technologists actually can do or ethics they have to follow? The cyber surveillance market is an underground market where technologists from countries like the UK, Italy, America, Israel, sell their technology to dictators. It costs a lot of money to use that WhatsApp hack. It's around a million dollars to buy that exploit. Who has that money? States, <laughs> governments. Not access now? <laughs> sorry, no. sorry, no. Million dollar. Yeah, yeah. We call them the million dollar activists. I wish they gave me that million dollar. <laughs> I would stop talking. <laughs> I'd buy a house, stay with my kids, and. <laughs> yeah. So Arthur, what about that? What about the role of the private sector companies like NSO um, and the development of these types of technologies? Um, what are the what are the aspects of this? I don't know, commercialization of, of surveillance um, that, is, that, that we should be concerned about. What more can be done? Uh, NSO was uh, 
became famous and I mean it's it's been it's been targeted by the United States government and others but obviously uh, new companies pop up all the time I'm sorry the gov the US government used NSO group well that was the New York Times yeah I mean I'm sure a lot of people did before it became public well I mean you know the uh, there's two parts to your question, right? What, the one part is, you know, that sort of what, what is the problem? And the, the problem is a very simple one. It's that, uh, you know, companies sell technology to some very, very bad people. Um, the, the, your second question is, a, is the, the much more interesting question, which is what can be done about it? And I'm going to say something that might sound strange for someone who's sitting up here, which is, I don't know. You know, I, I really, I, I don't know. And, and I, I, I'm sort of on this whole tip of spreading the, the gospel of uncertainty. Um, because there are a lot of questions around this that we don't really know the answers to. You know, like we, we say, oh, okay, well, well, we'll just make sure that companies only sell to regimes that have you know, uh, strong institutions of democracy. Okay, are you sure? You know, because not only did some very uh, non-democratic regimes by NSO, but also a country where I spend a lot of time, Spain. They bought NSO. And not to, not to hack into the, you know, the, the, the phones of um, violent criminals, but to, to hack into some Catalan independence politicians. Um, you know, I, I, I think, when we admit that we don't know, I, I, that, that it, it all becomes a little clearer in a sense. You know, like we talk about detox, oh, this is a good one, yeah, detoxifying large language models like ChatGPT, right? You say, okay, ChatGPT, it, it says some pretty toxic stuff. Well, let's throw a lot of money into detoxifying these systems so that they can be safe for use, right? Well, you know that there are places in the world where the uh, government believes that homosexuality is toxic. You know, so if we develop that technology, how are we sure that it's going to end up, uh, you know, only being used to detoxify in a way that aligns with our principles? Uh, you know, with putting aside the fact that that's a completely arbitrary uh, thing. I want to spread this gospel of uncertainty because I think in the context of that, some of the actions of companies become a little, a lot more questionable. You know, if, if they were to just say, we don't know, you know, if they weren't to just get up on stage and sort of reassure us that they have very strong ethical principles and they have a plan, um, a, a lot of what they did would, would be perhaps cast in... Um, in a different and, and uh, I think, um, justifiably less favorable, uh, favorable light. So I don't know. I'm sorry, Scott. I don't know. Well, it's very disappointing. I'm not inviting you back, no matter who you work for. Um, no, it, it is true. I, I just want to get a sense. Like, how many of you in this room uh, use a security key on your accounts? Excellent. Um, how many of you have a Gmail account? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so we all trust somebody with something, um, and so there is this trust model, and how do you trust, where do you trust, who do you trust? Uh, and when a, when a motivated state actor wants to get you or own you, uh, it's very difficult not to be gotten or owned. Um, Increasingly, Felicia, I was mentioning at the top that uh, authoritarian governments are learning from one another, uh, and they're sharing information with one another. And I was just curious if you would be able to shed a little bit of light on, given your experience in Africa, how you see that playing out in the information and uh, technical space. Um, yeah, thank you. And yeah, I just want to add on that um, the private sector is also complicit when it comes to um, shutdowns. And um, we know they provide governments with the technology to be able to disrupt the internet. 
in very sophisticated ways. And so um, we need more accountability in that aspect. But of course, um, uncertainty, I do agree. Um, we, we don't know. Um, but we just keep fighting. Um, with regards to governments learning from each other, I think our monitoring has made it clear that instead of them to learn the good practices, they enjoy learning the bad habits. <laughs> and so um, we, for instance, in Africa, for over five years, the trends we observed was that internet shutdowns were mostly used around elections and around um, protests. And I remember in 2012 or 2016, I don't, I don't ignore the, the time, but Uganda had shut down the internet um, that was social media during elections. And I, I wasn't the Keep It On campaign, campaigner by then, but then I was monitoring it. And it, it didn't make sense to me, like, why would you shut down social media because of elections? Um, and they actually shut down mobile money. And so I remember writing my, a very short statement because that wasn't really my field. But then it, it was just like, I was just driven by passion. So I did that. And then I kept monitoring. And the stories about how people got stranded uh, because they couldn't access social media, they couldn't send money, like, it was just... I couldn't believe a government would actually do that. Only for me to hear the Inspector General of Police of my own country saying that um, they might shut down social media during elections. And I was like... I thought this was so far away, but for him to have said that, and luckily civil society, like everybody, I think because of what had happened around the region, the community was already mobilized. And so like there was so much criticism and it took the president at the time to come up and say that, you know what, we won't shut down the internet and the internet was not disrupted. Unfortunately, this would have passed in certain contexts. Um, so we've seen Tanzania has shut down the internet during elections. And um, I remember prior to the 2020 elections, the government had also issued a law that um, more like criminalized the use of VPNs. And so it's premeditated. They know elections is coming up. We will shut down the internet. People will find ways to circumvent. And so let's make it harder for people. But then I really love the civil society community um, activists are becoming relentless in this fight, and so you can pass all the laws you want to pass. We will find a way to navigate that and to fight for our own rights. Um, we did see a decrease in the number of election-related shutdowns in Africa, but uh, my colleague is here, Zach, and we are not jubilating because so the thing about shutdowns and this um, acts of repression is that one success, you are jubilating, and then something worse happens. And so we don't get to um, enjoy those moments. But then this year, we have 11, no, 17 elections happening around the world, 11 of them in Africa. And so this will be the year that we are going to watch and see if indeed these governments have unlearned their old habits um, to keep it on, or would they shut down the internet? And so maybe um, next year during South By, if I, we have this session again, I'll be able to give you um, the updates on this one. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're very hopeful, very hopeful, Felicia. Yeah, I remember uh, the first country to really shut down the internet was Egypt, right, in 2011, yeah. Um, and I remember everybody I knew telling me at the time that there was no way in the world any country would ever shut down the Internet. N not going to happen. Not going to happen. Too much is connected to it, literally, figuratively, etc., for them to shut down the Internet. Uh, but when any government is that threatened, uh, it will do what it has to do. And it's an easy, it's an easy trigger to pull. Um, and so it's up to all of us to try to make that harder. 
Uh, which brings me uh, to my uh, last question for each of you. We've been talking about some of the the darkness here, but um, I've been around the block once or twice uh, and know that every dark cloud has some silver lining. And so I would ask each of you to reflect a minute or two to think about, like, what is it that actually gives you some degree of hope? All right. So I'm going to ask you, Felicia, first, and we're just going to go down the line. Okay. <laughs> I think I already started um, expressing my hope already. Um, but, um, yes, Internet shutdowns. Digital dictatorship is increasing. Um, governments are investing millions of dollars to restrict our rights. But then I think what keeps me going is the fact that we don't stop talking. We don't stop shining lights on these acts of repression that is happening. And um, you mentioned the Egypt shutdown in 2011. And so that was actually one of the reasons that the Keep It On Coalition campaign was born. Um, we did realize that after Egypt shut down the internet, governments also began doing it. And Egypt, the shutdown was just like unimaginable. And we thought it wouldn't happen again. But we have governments shutting down the internet completely. And so in response to that, we thought mobilizing civil society so we have a stronger voice together would make sense, and we have been able to make a lot of successes. Um, we've been able to get the UN, for instance, to adopt resolutions um, denouncing the use of internet shutdowns. And last year, for instance, yes, the number of shutdowns increased, but it was also a year we saw a lot of international solidarity from the UN, regional bodies, companies, individuals, supporting the fight. And so that is what keeps me going. I think we are hopeful that once we have a community that understands that this act is a violation to my fundamental rights, we will always have people fighting. We'll always have people um, speaking up, no matter um, the dangers that it comes with. And Manal is an example. She'd never stopped speaking up. Uh, because somebody is not happy with what she's saying. So I think let's just keep that fire burning. And um, digital dictatorship would not stop. But then if we become silent, then it's more dangerous than ever. So that is what keeps me going. And yeah, I'm hopeful that we will win this fight one day. But when, I don't know. And I don't have the answer. Thank you. Thank you, Felicia. Arthur. It's a, it's a funny question to ask me. You know, my, my friends have learned not to ask me what I'm working on. And, and when I meet a new person, they're like, oh, what do you do for a living? And within like three minutes, they're just looking just so despairing, regretting having asked me this question. Um, and yet, I'm a pretty hopeful person. You know, I sleep pretty well uh, at, at night. And um, I think there are... A, couple of, uh, of, of reasons for that, you know. Um, one is that, look, you, you've heard some pretty scary things in today's panel, right? They want to, you know, if they want to shut down the internet, they can. If, if, if they've got a million dollars, which isn't very much for a government, they're going to hack you. You know, if they want to watch you, if they want to follow you, they're going to follow you. So let me ask you, what are you going to do when you leave this room? You know, are you going to stop speaking your mind? Are you going to stop having hopes and aspirations? You know, part of what, me, what gives me a lot of hope is that um, we have no choice. You know, it's in our nature uh, to, to be hopeful. And um, that's just, that, that's just the, the nature of it. You know, that's, uh, that's, it's, this is an ongoing thing. And, and in that regard, the second thing that gives me hope is when I think about this issue in, uh, shall we say, slightly more geological time, <laughs> you know? Um, because it's easy to think in the here and now that there's absolutely no hope. Um, but I, I've been around the block maybe once. 
And even in that time, um, I've, I've seen tremendous progress, you know, particularly in the way that the, the industry talks about these things. You know, the industry says things now, I believe in good faith, that they never would have said 10 years ago. Um, and that gives, I think, should give us some justifiable faith in just the process, you know, because I'll tell you one other thing about people like, you know, the two wonderful people who are flanking me is that um, no matter how good the government gets at, like, its practices, they're never going to shut up, you know, they're never going to stop because that is the nature of the, the process that, you know, activists and advocates will always keep pushing, right? Um, and, and so I, I think in, in that regard, just having a little bit of a broader context of understanding that this is the process and it is in our nature to not give up, um, I think that helps one sleep a little easier at, at night. Thanks, Arthur. Manal? Can you guys say Amel? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that means hope in Arabic. There is a poem that says, Life would be unbearable without hope. And psychologists prove that. Mm -hmm. People survived the Holocaust because they had the people with hope. Mm -hmm. In 2018, the last country on earth lifted the ban on women driving. And the car keys were the key to change. Saudi Arabia went from last country on earth on the index of women in law and business to one of the top 20 by just lifting the restrictions on women. I am, true, living in a self-imposed exile. I can't talk to my friends back home. My son, I'm still separating from my kids. But just to see that there are all these millions of women in my country living their life, it makes me so happy. People see it's a loss, I see it a win. You lose battles to win the war. You're here. And I think it just be strategic about which battles to lose. So that gives me hope. Amen. That's awesome. Awesome. I'm so glad we ended on that note. Um, I know this has been a panel which is focused, has been mostly, largely focused on the advances that the authoritarians are making. But I hope you will agree with me that the, those who are represented here, uh, and there are many millions behind them, um, who are represented here are a source of hope for our future. The work that they are doing is really, truly extraordinary. And I just want to uh, ask you to join me in thanking them for this amazing discussion. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>